when we created the Near Malaysia, we were adamant on saying we are going to get a diverse council and we are going to make sure that we gather to all people. We don't want to see just 100% of Malays in our events. We don't want to see 100% of Chinese. And on top of that, we want women and we want everyone represented. And we managed to do it, Alejandro. That was Antonio Gone Multichain. And this, the first of the Get to Know the Near Community Trustees series. When I set off to make this series, the aim was very simple. Can we capture the human side of the trustees? Who are they? What have they done in the near ecosystem? And what makes them a good fit for the trustee role? I am excited to say that this podcast went above and beyond my expectations and it turned out to be a very wholesome exploration while covering major themes such as Antonio's role with Near Malaysia, his contributions to the Near startup ecosystem through Near Starter, and of course, most recently the Near Digital Collective, we go deep into the personal, such as his story from Spain to Malaysia, a bit of geopolitics and history, and we even get and we even get to see how first principles and integrity have driven his interest for gold and cryptocurrencies and away from centralized monetary policy. I really hope that you enjoy this podcast as much as I did, and I'm looking forward to getting the rest of the community trustees on the pod. Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy this beautiful conversation with Antonio Gonmaltechain. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I am thrilled to have with me Antonio Gone Multichain. Antonio wears many hats across the Near ecosystem, including guild leader at Near Malaysia, part of the team at Near Starter, and most recently, he has been appointed as a trustee of the Near Community Trust Fund. Welcome, Antonio. Thank you very much, Alejandro. Thrilled to be here with you. Thrilled to be with such a near OG. Oh, wow. Please, sir. Before we start, I think we need to settle this one. Which near t-shirt is better? <laughs> <laughs> I like yours very much, but this is the NearCon 2022. So until, oh. I guess, the, until I get the NearCon 2023, this will be my favorite t-shirt. So, yes. Wow. This is how you get the trustee role, I see. <laughs> Look, I'm not going to lie. I've got a bit of a grudge because the Neocon 2022 t-shirt that I got was a bit too small for me. I think I was eating too much during that trip, got a little bit chunky, and it just didn't quite fit me. I gave it to my sister. It happens, yes. I got so much cool merch in Neocon 2022. A lot of Aurora stuff, Keto, Ink 4, we're doing amazing merch. So yeah, I was discussing last AMA, I was having an AMA with Near Vietnam. And as you probably know, Vietnamese really want NearCon 2023 to happen in Vietnam. So I was also fired them up, saying that I will root for them and I really want to be somewhere in Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh, or even better, somewhere in the coast of Vietnam, like Da Nang or similar for NearCon 2023. So let's see where we end up going. This uh, is... A weird place to start, but maybe you can show your experience for Near Malaysia and we'll see if at some point we get back on track. The guilds in Near are something unique. You rarely will see such strong and grassroots communities from different regions around the world 
rooting for a particular ecosystem, comparatively with other L1s, near guilds, and later Aurora guilds, when they appeared, are a competitive advantage. In particular, I'll talk a bit more about how near Malaysia was created and what makes us be strong on certain aspects, but it's not necessarily the case in others. Because of the background of the people in the council of near Malaysia, for example, we had quite some experience running physical events. So we actually leveraged that to do a lot of physical events in Malaysia. And that's how our community grew much bigger than the initial scope that we had when we were just in Twitter. Another thing that happened in near Malaysia is that we had several council members that were related with the universities in Malaysia. It so happens that in Malaysia, they are not too open to blockchain technology. The government is quite conservative in that regard. But you have certain people that have been important in the university world in Malaysia that have been rooting for blockchain for several years. So to the point that they founded blockchain clubs within the universities. So you have two or three very hardcore blockchain universities, but just because they have a club that it's actually organizing events and inviting speakers and so on. So we leveraged that in our council in near Malaysia to grow a lot in the country. That's why we were using platforms like, like Twitter and Telegram, but you could not understand the community without going to those kind of events. Now, if, if I compare, for instance, because we were even struggling with things like putting some bots in Telegram, something so simple, we didn't have any one of those six council members that was really an expert on Telegram, let alone even the discussion of having a Discord or not. But I do have other leaders in other countries that are very good at social media. So I think one cool thing about the guilds is how diverse they are. I would imagine that Telegram group was out of control because on the near Australia, New Zealand Telegram group, which hasn't been very active up until now, I'm actually back in New Zealand now to reactivate that community, but we have been overrun by bots. Like it's wild. We've even tried to fight the bots with bot, but the bot can only do so much. It's a real problem. But this is all music to my ears because I've been trying to map the guilds and the community on near. And I love your insights because you've also been there since the beginning. The guilds program is a very loaded term because it starts back in the Eric era. <laughs> Eric introduces the guilds program. There was even a lot of confusion about what the word guild meant. I think, or I've been told now that the vision for the foundation at the time was that the guilds were going to be more like servicing groups so they could step up to just specific roles. Maybe it wasn't as squarely community driven or there may have been a mismatch of expectations there. Whatever the case may be, then we have the Marik era. And I would even call it like the era of revision, a revision, review, renewal. 2022 is full of changes and I like that towards the end of 2022, there is a clarity of vision at the foundation level that they'll do top down. They're good with the corporates and the web 2.5, etc., And they're handing over control and proper power to the community, to the grassroots stuff, because it is no secret, especially to anyone that was involved in the community beforehand, that community was kind of left out there in the cold during 2022. Like it wasn't abandoned, but it wasn't the top priority. 
And there were lots of people that were asking for support or guidance. I'd love to know how you see that evolution and especially insights on how we can renew it because it all will lead slowly to the NDC and the structures that we now have the power to take initiative to implement. I can see that guilds have been paused because funding has been paused, but you still see the communities alive. Engagement across the board, I believe, on all blockchains because I'm connected to many to many ecosystems and normally engagement from the bull time has dropped anywhere from 80 to 90%, right? So for every 10 people that were active at certain point during the bull market in a year or so, you only have one or two people left. And I think that's pretty much what you can see in NIR and in the guilds, and you can see in other blockchains. NIR also needs to somehow capitalize on something that they were very good at. They were definitely above average, which was education and how things like the NIR University, but not only NIR University, but also NIR Academy and other Web3 learning tools such as LNC, Learn NIR Club, or even something like Crosswords, right? And how Crosswords the tool that Mike created can be used to learn about projects. I want to see how the communities can leverage these tools with the support, of course, of the foundation and the community treasury and all this decentralization that's bound to happen in the coming quarters of 2023. This is all music to my ears because as we try to rejig the regional program, we're really putting an emphasis on in-person events because you don't really know who your community is if you're just on social media. The real test is if you put an event, who shows up? If you're on a hackathon, you know, how many people participate? If you have an education program, how many people do it? That's where you really start to see who the community is. It's really good that Near Malaysia has had that initiative since the beginning. Some of the other legacy challenges is that Near starts to grow during the pandemic. So even if we knew or we tried to do in-person events, it was just not possible. Like I remember from MetaBeetle 2, they had the really cool concept, which I hope they bring back, of having CD notes. So there was this global hackathon where anyone could participate, major prizes, mentoring, but you could self-organize as a CD note and get the people together. I put my hand up, we were organizing a city node in Melbourne, we were going to get this like university campus, like it was going to be amazing. And four days before we went back into lockdown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's a challenge. Yeah. Well, one thing that I was very happy about was the NCD, NCE, Near Certified Developer, Near Certified Entrepreneur. In fact, I did NCE, Near Certified Entrepreneur, and another two member councils did the NCD. But then right when we got like, man, around 20 or 30 people signing up to do the NCD, uh, like the format changed and it was not so taught. It was more like self-taught. You do the stuff, you submit a capstone project. And if you do it right, you're going to pass it. But we had a lot of people that were quite beginner and would have liked that guidance that the initial format had. So that was a little bit disappointing. But let's see what we come up with in this 2023. I like that because I think there's a good precedent. We've already had the wallet being handed over to a community team. And now I saw a request for proposal recently to do the same for AstroJAO. It's going to be turned over to a community team. I think that 
any initiative such as education could very well be taken over or have more contribution from the community, especially because I'm really curious who the demographic is or the target demographic the foundation is going for the top developers or the top deals. Someone really needs to map out, well, where do the beginners go, the real beginners? And you've pointed out some observations that I've heard in other contexts for education, but that are really valuable around cohort-based performs much better. Mm-hmm. Self-guided, yeah. no guidance, you just register and may forget. Because indeed, the person it's at a near physical event, he's fired up because he sees so many people there all talking about this thing called blockchain, and he understands a little bit about what near is and the power it has. But then in that fire of the moment, he signs up for the course because he can see the power of the community. But then later, if he's not guided through until he gets his certificate, then he's going to feel a little bit like, oh, from the solitude of my home, it doesn't look so cool as, as that day in the near event in the main auditorium of the biggest university of Malaysia. So that's a little bit where like our funnel was diminishing very much from inscriptions to final delivery. Yes. From the solitude of my home. <laughs> it is quite a poetic way to, to describe it. I like it. I think that we're off to a strong start, but... I would like to take you back to the beginning. You're originally from Spain. You have been in Malaysia for a long time. How did that happen? (laughs) How did that happen? Yeah, that's normal. Yeah, before working full-time on on DeFi and on, on blockchain, I was an aviation engineer. So I studied aeronautical engineering and economics. And I worked in France. I worked in the U.S., and then I worked in a couple parts of Asia before finally setting up in settling down in Malaysia, where we were getting a, a basically a big factory in which we were manufacturing air- aircraft components. All right. So for any AirAsia, Malaysia Airlines, Qantas, pretty much any airline in the Asia Pacific that you can imagine. So that was my previous job or my previous industry for almost eight years until I then fully transitioned into crypto. And the way it happened is that I had been learning about crypto, especially Bitcoin, Monero, since 2017. Just learning on my own, just as a hobby, reading a lot about it. Not necessarily so much involved on price action, investing and so on. But then when DeFi came in 2020, that I could feel that was the way to make cryptocurrencies mainstream and to make blockchain applications mainstream. And I got very involved since the very beginning. That's a little bit how I started doing some freelance stuff. And eventually I transitioned into a full-time job, but I was still, during that transition, I was still living in Malaysia. It's a beautiful country to live in, beautiful people, pretty much whole South, Southeast Asia. And that's it, man. That's how I fully transitioned into crypto, but very much attached to Malaysia. That's amazing. And I'm curious as to what Spain would have been like while you were growing up or from all the countries that you lived, if there were any experiences that later on, when you start finding out about Bitcoin or where you start finding out about DeFi, you start to make that connection. It's all, I see what problem it is Mm -hmm. trying to solve, or I see the potential 
that it could have because I've seen these issues in this place or for these people. Yeah, yeah. Funny thing, funny anecdote because no, nobody goes so deep right into us that these kind of questions when we do AMAs and stuff. But I'm a big gold bug. That you're going to laugh because you're from Australia. It's a place where there's a lot of mining and precious metals are a big thing there. But I am a big gold bug and silver bug. I am against government currencies stepping out of the gold standard. I'm against monetary policy being in the hands of the few and deciding what they do with their policies and then subjecting all the citizens to an inflationary tax. When you just read Bitcoin white paper and when you just read about what hardcore blockchain and cryptographers want, at the end of the day, they just want to put that monetary policy back into the people. They just want to create a more transparent system. And although Europe in particular, or where I lived, where I grew up, did not have any hyperinflationary problem like other countries like Turkey, Iran, Venezuela, Argentina may have lived, I know very much that's the path that uh, eventually all major currencies will find itself into. I, one thing that it's maybe interesting to highlight is that although I am very much a cryptocurrency advocate, I am still a gold bug because for me, things are not mutually exclusive. At the end of the day, you're just seeking the same thing. You're just seeking monetary policy to be rational and to be predetermined, not to be able to be changed at the whim of somebody in an office somewhere. You know what that means? That means that rather than being whatever, a gold head or whatever they may call people who are obsessed with gold in a pejorative way, or rather than being a crypto bro or whatever they call people obsessed with dot coins and trading, you're driven by first principles. Before choosing the asset class, first you assessed what is the lay of the land, what are the issues mm -hmm. with central banking and what things could potentially satisfy. That's correct. A solution or a counterpart. I'm wondering how much, obviously within your lifetime and parentheses, you age extremely well doing the maths here on how many years you've worked in aviation and how many years it would have taken to study <laughs> and how many years you've been in crypto. Your age is an enigma. I don't even want to know because my mind is going to be fucked. Yeah, it's Very productive lifetime. <laughs> but. Even though within your lifetime, Spain hasn't had any major crisis, depending how you categorize 2008 and the global crisis at the time, I wonder how much of that is historical in nature and just embedded in the institutions. Because I recall reading Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and one chapter that I found fascinating was the one where he was looking at the origins of money, but he was comparing the king of the Netherlands with the king of Spain and the power that they had over money and honoring debt. And in the Netherlands, they were pretty good. And they basically invented this modern banking like debt. They invented, I owe you money. Mm -hmm. And in Spain, they were like, fuck you. I'm not paying you. I'm the king. There's a long history of the evolution of money. And that's what the chapter was getting at, that as the tools evolve, we keep tackling problems that existed with a previous form of money, but that we just didn't have any better. And that's what I think maybe not many people see in a very narrow time frame, 
But when you start looking at what the blockchain can offer and some of the problems that we have now in 50 years time, in hindsight, it's going to seem so obvious, right? Like it seems inevitable. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And all I think is that things are not black and white, like decentralization is a spectrum. I truly believe that like different blockchains can coexist and also different stores of value. So when people are Bitcoin advocates, but they look down on gold, for example, it's man, you can own different assets. You can have a portfolio where you are allocating something, even if just as an insurance, because I think it, it has come a moment where if you don't own like two or 3% of your portfolio in something like Bitcoin, it's more risky than actually doing it. Like the risk you're exposed by refusing to adopt that kind of store of value as ultimate backstop, if anything big happens, you are, you're having a bigger risk than if you do it. And in a similar case, I would say for gold, right? And when you say gold, you say silver, you say other precious metals. And when you say Bitcoin, it does not necessarily need to be only Bitcoin. You can also find value and use cases on other assets, ETH that they like to call ultrasound money nowadays, right? And there is a reason to, or there is a, a narrative to believe that all of these assets can coexist. 100%. I think that if you choose a very narrow set of circumstances, you may be able to say this asset is better. Shit hits a fan, the aliens come and you have to run and leave everything behind. Maybe having your private keys tattooed on your ass or something may be the best way to go. But I do find that a lot of these scenarios are fairly extreme. The internet goes down, whatever the aliens take away our magnetic poles or something. Maybe Bitcoin is useless, but we still have gold. I 100% agree with you. It's definitely not that black or white. And I think that the best money managers in the world definitely diversify. Like I'm looking at it now with buying property and I'm weighing in buying property in Colombia or buying property in Australia. To be honest, both would be amazing buys. In here it goes back to 20 bucks. I'll buy both because... Colombia, especially Medellin, it's got perfect weather, great time zone. There's a massive boom now with digital nomads, over 80% occupancy rates on Airbnb. It's both something that I would use three months a year, but also could be a good investment. Higher risk profile, you never know what's going to happen in a time within five years, but there's that. And then Australia, it's very stable, but very expensive and a big commitment. And maybe the returns are not the same. We'll be there forever. I don't think neither one is better than the other one. It's just very personal. Really interesting, man. There's one funny thing about me. I've never been anywhere south of Texas. So I really need to go into not only South America, but also the whole Central America region. There is ETH LATAM happening in Honduras in October. And I really think that's going to be the time in which I'm going to be there. And hopefully I will also go to Colombia. It's a place which I really want to visit. I don't want to generalize for the entire region, but one thing that I observed in Venezuela was that because we're so close to the U.S., you always uh -huh. aim north. You go to Disneyland. If you're fancy, you go to New York. Once you've traveled, you make your way to Europe. <laughs> like I've got family that are very wealthy. And they've only been to Europe like twice, like their playground is more like the US. And if you start extending that, you, you need to travel a lot to go to Asia. 
to find someone from Latam that has traveled around Asia, they usually very well traveled or they were there for a spe very specific reason. I'm wondering whether it's the same like backwards to find a Malaysian in Brazil that must have either traveled a lot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. A, I have found very little Lat Latin people in Southeast Asia. You have some, but very little. And I do believe it's the same the other way around. I don't know what a nation would be doing in places like Colombia or Mexico or Argentina, unless it's in the mining sector, which I know it's increasingly being taken in these companies from what I've been told. Yeah, working for a Chinese mining company and tourism, probably different experiences. <laughs> But yeah, there's probably a lot there around the cost of traveling, which is sad because when you look at the actual costs of day-to-day -day things in these regions, it's fairly affordable. If you can save up for the flights, I think you can make the rest of the experience work. That's I would highly recommend it. At the moment, I've got this like digital nomad heartbreak. I feel like I left a part of me like a horcrux in Colombia, in Brazil, in everywhere that I've been. I just want to go back, especially now that I'm in New Zealand, because it's really nice, but it's so far. It's so far from everything. From everything else, yes. Oh my God. It's not like a weekend trip to see my family in Miami. No. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and it's just incredible, New Zealand, that you just, even in the map, you know, because of the distortion, it looks like it's almost next to Australia, but it's even very far from Australia when you start looking at it in a globe, right? Yeah. You want to listen to a crazy story? Yeah. When I first came to Australia, Australians are funny in weird ways, and they come up with all sorts of stuff to like scare foreigners. So they've got like this drop bear, which is basically like a, I think it's like a panda. <laughs> no, no, no. So, not a panda, the koala. Okay. It's a koala when it's wet. It just looks like a beast because it's like super muscly and it's got like teeth. So they call them drop bears and allegedly they attack tourists. I didn't buy into that one. But the one that I thought was hilarious, I didn't believe it, but I just thought it was so funny. They told me that New Zealand wasn't real. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, yeah, have you met anyone from New Zealand? And the story goes that during World War II, because Japan was like, making strong headways in the region yeah the first part is true australia said fuck it if japan makes it to like the north of queensland we're not going to defend that we're just going to retreat and defend the rest and then they told me that at that point they made up new zealand to make it look like a smaller target they were it's like oh it's the same as australia but smaller maybe they'll go there first <laughs> And That's I was like, a nice story, man. That one you can believe it, though. If I hadn't known about geography up until then, I would have probably believed it. Yeah, it's plausible. Nice. It's not about strategy, militarily speaking. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's nice. so big, man. It's, it's a bit insane. Look, I look back at my ancestors, the people that came to Australia before me. 50 plus. Dude, that was a three month journey by boat. <laughs> I have it easy. It's 14 hours on Qantas from LA. Yes. But I'm thinking that maybe our descendants will look back at us and be like, damn, those plebs, 14 hours on a plane. Because I know that 
they're working on hypersonic travel or supersonic travel. I have no idea how it works. I think you go up to space and then across or something, but they're saying that you could be in the world within not that long. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, man, let's see. Long trips are a pain. Yeah, especially like the typical exotic trips you're saying, like when you're going from Asia to to South America or things like that. It's really a pain, but let's see where technology brings us. If you think about it, it has been like several decades without us reaching any major milestone in terms of faster speed when traveling. But you have gotten, if you realize, ultra safe flights. Like in the decade of the 70s, the decade of the 80s, air accidents were very prevalent. It was quite often you'd have a plane crashing. And nowadays it's like you can have two or three years without any plane crashing, even though you have millions and millions of civil flights every year. So it's crazy how we have improved on safety. Now let's see what we can do in terms of speed in the next couple of decades. Yes, please. I don't know if things have changed in the last 15 years, but I remember when I was coming to Australia, I wasn't scared, but you're a little bit anxious about such a long flight. And my uncle told me that Qantas was the only airline in the world that has never had a security incident. Uh-huh. And obviously I flew Qantas on the way here, the national carrier, the yeah, flying yeah, kangaroo. It's, it's arguably the safest or still one of the safest together with Singapore Airlines. Yes, I mean, it has an impeccable uh, track record. And I think there's many lessons there that can be carried across many industries on how your environment shapes you. If you think of Australia, we are an end of the journey destination. Like no one has a stop over here to go elsewhere. And most of the flights are very long. So by default, the whole service has been shaped with very long journeys in mind, especially say a short journey, eight hours to Singapore. They know most people are not staying in Singapore. So they want to make sure that you're not dying on these planes. So yeah, everything from security to comfort, you could probably save a few hundred bucks by flying different airlines, but on a long journey, it's probably worth to pay a little bit more and have more comfort. Singapore Airlines is the same. And I think that Emirates, Qatar, all these Middle Eastern airlines, interestingly enough, they're actually the opposite. They are hubs. (laughs) Most people have transit there to and from, they can have pretty long journeys. Yeah, aviation is a fascinating industry. Cutthroat competition, it's just crazy. But a little bit the same, I would say, everywhere. Look at the battle of the DEXs. Look at the battle among different sectors in blockchain. Look at the battle among L1s. I think we live in an hyper-competitive world anyways. Cutthroat to, like, margins and profitability or...? Margins, yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially low-cost airlines think that many times they fly at a loss. Like they know they're going to sell you like extra menu, extra whatever, but the ticket they are selling it to you for 10 or 20 euro or dollar or whatever it is, and they're not making money. I'm talking mostly about places like Europe or Asia. In the US, it's a little bit different because they managed to create like a cartel already, the bigger lines. But yeah. I'm telling you, Americans are good compete until we have a cartel and that's yeah. it <laughs> i am pretty sure that i'm basically subsidizing all the airlines i missed my flight out of denver to mexico <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I got the timing wrong and I missed those. And so what I, makes you like, what makes you be, because, okay, you're a digital nomad, but you are, you travel a lot, right? Is that because of work or is that because you really want to do tourism or you want to be in many places at the same time? It looks like it doesn't cost you any effort to fly. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about your energy. Also. Willpower. <laughs> Yeah, look, that is an excellent question. And I've actually been reflecting on that recently because as I walk around New Zealand to the grocery store, there's a beautiful park I go running in the mornings now. <laughs> I can actually see people that I see myself in them like many years ago, like early migrants. And everyone has the same look in their face. It's like they're happy to be here but they're not here by choice. Like they're working towards something. Okay. And I would, the phrase that I came up with was Australia and New Zealand are the countries of delayed gratification. You migrate to Miami, you migrate to Spain from day one, you know, everyone it's party. It's very, there's something different. You're mm -hmm. very connected here. It's like you're on your own. You have to prove yourself. You could unlock paradise level. Because honestly, this is as good as it gets to paradise, but it's fucking hard. Dude, I spent 15 years to get my citizenship, hundreds of thousands in a university degree. It's just like countless Christmas. I've missed all the weddings in my family. Like I my sister got married and I didn't, I couldn't go. So I feel like now that I have it, it's like, well, what do I want to do with my life? And I start looking at my peers, like my friends, lawyers, accountants, consultants, public servants, nine to five, wear a suit, go to the office. You know, I'm not going to say it's mediocre work, but you don't choose your workload. Like it's given to you. And I'm like extremely lucky that I get to choose what I work on. And it really is unique that we are in an industry that is so young and it's growing so fast that anyone could put their hand up. This is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm best at. And you could probably make a living. And when you combine that with the ability to travel anywhere in the world, dude, I feel like I've got a decade of travel in me. <laughs> Maybe some of that more recently has to do with lockdowns as well. But there was a PTSD thing in me where I couldn't leave my house for more than one hour a day or go beyond five kilometer radius. I'm not exaggerating. I picked up my passport. Like I went to the passport office. My passport is still in the plastic with the date it was issued. I left the next day. I haven't been back. Seven months plus. I'm like, fuck it. I'm free. Why am I working so much? Why am I making money if I can't enjoy it? Now I'm slowly going back into a routine. But I think there was like a need to just break out, not be told what to do. And... Yeah, I guess make the most of it while we can. Who knows? Crypto may be ending and I have to go back to an office job. <laughs> wow, man. It's incredible. Me too. I mean, for certain reason, in 2017, I traveled to 12 different countries. And then it, I was just having fun. But at the, at the same point, I said, okay, enough. You know what? I have grown tired of traveling. Now I don't see the fun anymore. I stopped enjoying. I stopped doing the touristy things and then see the landmarks, see the landscapes and see the typical things you'd see in places like Myanmar, Korea, Thailand, whatever. And then I said, okay, I'm going to go into a travel break until 
I find the passion again. So it's just crazy how things like pandemic or over traveling can just like change, change your perception, but it's normally always temporary. There's something there that some people might think it's bad, but I think it's actually good for humanity. When you travel enough, and same, I think 2018, I did 26 countries or something. You start to realize that everywhere is the same, but different. Yes. Yes. Like, it's actually hilarious. Like, I was talking to my sister and I visit her in Costa Rica. And she was saying like, isn't this just like Venezuela? And I was like, this is a road through a jungle on the way to a beach and it's all underdeveloped. It's just like trees and a shitty road. Could also be Thailand or Malaysia. (laughs) Could be anywhere in the world. It's the same. And the people, the mannerisms, the culture, the music. And that's when you realize that it's not the place, it's the people who you travel with or who you meet. And over time, it's actually counterproductive because you keep meeting amazing people, but then parting ways. And you're like, you know what? I actually want to stay in the one place and keep nurturing those relationships. And that's what gives me energy. It's not the historical buildings. It's not the, whatever it is. You just want to feel like you belong. So yeah, I can relate. Totally, man. And bringing this back to crypto, I'm really excited to have you on the global South. I had Sheldon before he's currently in Bali. I have a very strong thesis that for crypto to survive, we have to be decentralized, like the people, the community. We need to have many engines for growth, many centers for growth, communities that are not dependent on any one regulator, on any one bank. And I want to make sure that not only do we empower these communities to do more, but that we give them visibility. Because you may remember that for a long time, Nier was actually not big. It was almost non-existent in the US. Near started and was championed by the developing countries, the people that understood early on that Ethereum was expensive as fuck. Near was not only affordable, but they started to discover all the layers of usability and etc. Yeah, making sure that these regions are, they can stand on their own. I really liked from the Neo Malaysia website, our motto is striving to bring blockchain and near to 32 million Malaysians. No, I believe that's our motto. Yes. There's a lot of wording there that really highlights, and I may be contradicting myself because I just said that every place is same, same, but different, <laughs> but I really like that it highlights the uniqueness of the country and that new Malaysia is trying to win the hearts of the 32 million Malaysians and just highlighting are acknowledging the local landscape, you know, business friendly. There's a lot of potential for creating a pool of developers, human yeah, resources. Because, have you been in Malaysia? Not yet. Gotcha. So what happens in Malaysia, it's a very unique country. Basically you have 60% of the population, which is Malay and Malays are Muslim by birth, by the way. So they don't have a choice on that. 30% of Chinese and 10% of Indians. And it's a country that was British colony until 1960, until the 60s. So it's a country where you have extreme diversity of cultures and extreme diversity of religions because you have Buddhism, you have Hinduism, and then you have the main religion, which is Islam. 
the country is as diverse as you can imagine, a lot of tensions. It is not rare for you that you'll find restaurants where there are only Malays eating, there are restaurants where only Chinese eat, Muslims where not eat, where, halal, where there is not halal food, Indians will go on their own. And there are certain unique situations in which you manage to get all the different communities represented. And when we created Near Malaysia, because other blockchain communities in the country, they are either like 100% Malay or they are 100% Chinese. And that's pretty much how many things go in the country. It's either or. And when we created the Near Malaysia, we were adamant on saying we are going to get a diverse council and we are going to make sure that we gather to all people. So we don't want to see just 100% of Malays in our events. We don't want to see 100% of, of a Chinese. And on top of that, we want women and we want everyone represented. And we managed to do it, Alejandro. We are a very diverse council and very diverse events. With the luck that because a couple of universities have been supporting us a lot, these universities themselves are also very diverse. So that, that's funny thing about like when you hear about diversity, you always hear very good things. There are, the reality is that many times what you see is a lot of segregation, but when you manage to bring everything under one banner, and in this case, it was blockchain, it was near, we managed to do it. And that is a little bit along those lines, we made the website. That is a very subtle, but beautiful distinction. Diversity is good when you have that layer in common where people can get together to work towards that one thing, respecting each other's differences. Diversity is not so good when you force people to be together when they just have clashing interests. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we should always be mindful of. Okay, what is a shared layer? What are we all working towards? But then respecting everyone's way of doing things and of behaving. I didn't know much about Malaysia's history, but what I did know was entangled with Singapore's history. I started reading the biography of Lee Kuan Yew. Holy shit. Unreal. I'm going to try to get the audiobook if it exists, because I picked it up from my friend's bookshelf and had to return the book before I could finish. And it's like massive book, but his story is unbelievable. He was a teenager during the Japanese occupation, and then he studies law in the UK. And the evolution of Singapore, especially, the point in history that is relevant here would be the tension at the time between whether Singapore remains part of Malaysia or it breaks off. And the English I mean, he, was, like, he was crying when he had to tell his citizens that they were being expelled from the Federation. And yeah, they, he was trying. They basically didn't they, know how they are going to survive as a nation at that time. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you probably have much more context. He was trying to stay. The UK was lobbying for them to stay. But part of the deciding factors, if not the main one, was to actually to kick them out or split off that territory and basically send all the Chinese down to Singapore and then Malay, like Muslim Malay over to Malaysia. I don't know whether it was just to, but basically by, by in Espanol, we say azares del destino, by randomness, right? 
or happened to be an island where the majority of the population was Chinese. Happened the same in another island up there, which is called Penang. But I guess that it was easier to just secede or make Singapore secede. And the context is that, yes, there had been a civil war in Malaysia, the Malaysian emergency, where pretty much Malays and Chinese had clashed. It was very bloody clashes because there was a point where the UK was withdrawing from the country and it was not really clear whether that was going to be a Muslim majority or Malay controlled country or it was going to be a Chinese controlled country with affinity to the communisms in China. And because this last thing is the one that the UK and pretty much anywhere in the West wanted, that's pretty much why you ended up having the Malays in power. But there was a time where it was pretty much flipping a coin to decide who's going to rule the country. And in Singapore, it was the Chinese, but in Malaysia, it was the Malays. Yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating how this individual, Lee Kuan Yew, was still able to turn around his country, which it was just a poor island with no resources whatsoever, while the Malayan Peninsula was full of tin and palm oil and all the resources and rubber and all the resources you can imagine. But he was able to turn around his country and transform it in the city and the state that it is today. One of the most powerful things from the Singapore history, and I'm sure that there's many lessons there that we can draw to governance of a new digital nation state, is that they become independent, so they're sovereign, but he models the institutions to mirror very closely the English institutions, battle-tested and evolved over hundreds of years. So some may say that Singapore struck the best of both worlds by having that independence, but not having to start from scratch because of risk that many countries know very well because of experience it is when you start from scratch, you've got a new, new king with no education, no experience. It's actually a very vulnerable situation to throw a country in. Even Australia, it's still part of the Commonwealth. I studied that history when I was in law school here and my mind was blown because they had this progressive independence. Every so often they could have more and more rights. But up until 1989, you could still appeal from the High Court in Australia, which is the highest one, to the Privy Council in the UK. 1989, you could be like, nah, these fucking plebs don't know. I'm going to go talk to the queen. It's like, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting lesson in progressive decentralization, if you may call it. <laughs> wow. Crazy man, I didn't know that. It's really funny. Till 1988, yeah, it's... it's just like yesterday. Yeah. And now, since the split with the EU, there's been a movement to strengthen again those ties. So for instance, from Australia, we want to have unlimited travel in the UK. My joke when I got the Australian citizenship is that it's a two for one. When you land in New Zealand, they give you a resident visa and you can stay here indefinitely. Like it's basically the same. In fact, Australian residents in New Zealand vote in New Zealand, which is super strange. It's not the same the other way around, but they're very close. But for many things, they're basically the same country. So we were pushing for that with the UK. But the problem is that the numbers don't add up. Because if you do it, it's actually fine for Australians to go there. 
very small country. How many are going to go to the UK? But for the UK, apparently the demand to come to Australia is like unlimited. So they were like, we don't know how this is going to work. And yeah, there's just been a lot of political change since. But Gotcha. Yeah, I have many British friends and they're not happy there, man. I don't blame them. I don't know if it's the weather or whatever. But basically you're saying that you'd have a lot of British people like migrating to Australia. Is that? Yeah, I think so. Look, Australia is a time warp. It's like the US 50 years ago. Yeah. There are more jobs and more opportunity than people. And if you want to work hard, you can really make it. Gotcha. All my friends hit 30. They had enough savings for a house. Sure, houses are expensive. Sure, interest rates are going up. But how many places in the world at age 30, you can put down a down payment for a house and gotcha. own your property? Yeah. Not that many. And there's a ton of things that work, not without challenges. The longer you spend there, the more skeptic you get. But you'd say that the UK is just more competitive. Yeah. For dynamics as well, that don't really play in their favor because so much money from around the world aggregates in the UK. The housing market is completely out of whack. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'm very British Europe. I'm sorry to say, yeah. I mean, the US has many more geographical and especially in terms of resources, raw materials, have a whole system that they can basically survive in outer key. They can survive if they just bring manufacturing onshore, etc. Europe, I just like demographics and the welfare state and everything just simply don't add up to me. I don't think you have a smooth solution for it other than a hard landing, basically. Dude, there was Eric Weinstein was on the Joe Rogan podcast recently again. Mind-blowing podcast because he goes into physics and aliens and all sorts of crazy shit. But we'll leave that one for another episode. He said one thing that blew my mind. Not the first time I hear it, but the way that he said it with such a conviction, without hesitation, he says, oh, some people hate on the Jews because whatever, we're too powerful too much money to overrepresented in institutions. And he's like, you don't understand. It's a, we're the ones that made it. <laughs> so many people from like the general population died. And by the way, Dick Smith, which is the biggest person in Australia has said the same thing many times. The Jews that had money and the Jews that saw what was going on, they got the fuck out early when they could. So there's probably some parallels here around the people from Europe, regardless of religion, that make it to the United States yeah. probably have a different set of beliefs, ambition. They may have been persecuted. There was a ton of that as well, which also changes your drive to even South America. I was in Latam now, and maybe because I was a tourist, quote unquote, like a bit insulated from some of the political challenges. There is an energy in that region. People want to do things. If you give them the tools and you give them the opportunity, there's no limit to how far they can reach. Yeah. Europe, it's like, yeah, I don't want to work past 50. <laughs> Live off the state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I totally get you. Totally get you. It's just an endless debate about welfare state. Is it good or not? Where do you put the limit? Yeah. 
where you stop helping a citizen to make it just be complacent and just be a sheep, like following whatever you want them to follow. Tricky. I guess we keep coming back to that point of how do we empower regional communities? Because the point that I made, it's probably the biggest challenge in most of these regions, Colombia, Brazil, whatever. If the government is a limitation, can we make a compelling case that the digital world offers new opportunities and the blockchain space specifically not only creates new opportunities for business, but even to overcome some of the existing like hyper-local challenges? Very good question. I don't know if you have traveled. I want to travel when I go to LATAM to this like Bitcoin Lake and to all these like Bitcoin regional efforts that are being created. I just wonder to which point are they going to be able to be like self-sustaining societies based purely, I mean, living purely on the blockchain when it comes to, to financial transactions. Not very bullish on, but I really want to be on the ground before judging, basically. I heard very good things, but I was hearing those things from Bitcoiners. So I want to have a, an unbiased opinion and a first account on it. Last bit of trivia. Did you know that Melbourne in Australia, where I technically live or where I have lived for the last 12 plus years, they have the largest population of Greeks outside of Athens. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure. So people from all over the world, but I didn't recall seeing a lot of Greeks though. Yeah, there's there there's a suburb or there are suburbs that where they tend to congregate, like Oakley, but there's and they're doing really well by the way. They tend to be pretty well off. There's this joke that if they had the power to coordinate, <laughs> they could probably actually not only affect elections in Greece, but just take over the country back. <laughs> <laughs> we're back motherfuckers we're gonna teach you how to do the, it with the recent crisis they had about one decade and a half ago or is this just like second generation greeks all the way back all the way back wow like some greeks will still tell you ah the fucking brits this is all the, the history of europe is a history of war yeah. i don't even want to open that can but the reason why i mention it is because i'm flying to japan in two weeks to see Balaji speak at ETH Pragma, which is part of ETH, Glo ETH Global, ETH Tokyo. And Balaji has had this notion of the network state for a long time. If you could basically remove the geographical boundaries and actually have an opt-in cohort, he calls it a state, but I haven't read the book, so I don't want to go too much into detail, but it is a fascinating concept because I've always thought of that ability for all the expats to coordinate and hopefully try to have a positive influence back in the country. Really interesting. Yes. I like the individual. I like Balaji's. Pretty much like I, I find difficult to not like crypto personalities unless they're really like clearly driven by profit or whatever, like you're a machine skill of the days or whatever. Like even people like Dokuon that now you have many detractors. I do praise the guy. The guy just had an idea that he didn't fructify. 
Granted, for instance, the whole anchor thing was maybe sold as a savings option and downplayed the risk and so on. But I'm pretty much in favor of all these people that try to advance a message of decentralization and censorship resistance. And Balajis is definitely one of the people that I admire. Yeah. So let me how let me know how that goes. For sure. Do you want to come? It's not that far ish. Pass. I'll find, Fair enough. I'll find my travels. As I said, I want to be in Lata in quarter four. I will be probably resting mostly until then. I would suggest to consider the Mediterranean around November. Gotcha. I see. Interesting. Now, Dukon, there's a ton of dodgy shit going on with Luna, but I do think that the community deserves more, not of the blame, but more ownership, like take responsibility. Because long before Luna collapsed, there were many people voicing concerns around the design and they were dismissed. And they were not just dismissed, they were humiliated, they were That's made true. fun yeah, of. They were humiliated. By the way, you know that I put a proposal, you're going to laugh. People laughed at me and I knew they were going to laugh, but I still had to put it, as you say, to be a man of principles. I put a proposal on the Terra Forum to like a portion of the reserves of the Luna Foundation Guard by gold, like to back Luna with gold. And to bag UST with gold, basically. And of course, people were laughing at me royally. But that aged very well because after UST crashed and Luna crashed and so on, gold went on to make a new heights. So I was like, hey, who loves that one? But yeah, there was a lot of humiliation around the critical thinking that people tried to put inside of everything regarding Terra. I love those historical timestamps when at the time it would seem like much. It's a post on a governance forum. Maybe not many people see it. Maybe they completely dismiss it. But it is so important to be able to track people's actions and thoughts over time. Because the one thing that the Luna debacle shows to me was that a lot of people were willing and able to turn off their critical thinking because they were making money in the short term. And that's fine because most users of your product don't have to think critically or they shouldn't have to. That's the whole point about technology. We keep making people dumber and the products are easier to use. But someone asked you, like if you call yourself part of the community, if you want to engage in governance, if someone brings up a point that may be legitimate, at least look into it. And there are so many warning signs there and lessons for the near community now. How do we avoid that groupthink? How can we create a culture where people can ask questions on the governance forum, but do so in a respectful, constructive manner? How can we make sure that we're not ridiculing people, but also has to be a balance? And this is something that I think about a lot. I am not without one too many posts on the governance forum on various topics, but... Agreed, man. Now... I'm wondering how to do this. So I wanted to talk about near starter first, just to highlight the broad spectrum of contributions that you have to the near ecosystem, ranging from community in Malaysia to a near starter as a project and its aims. We have been talking pretty heavily about governance and regional. So I didn't know whether to jump straight into NTC or whether we do have that near starter parenthesis and then do NTC. Maybe I can tell you, before Near Starter, maybe we need to make the link with Near Malaysia, because one thing that happened also in Near Malaysia is that 
we have a lot of builders in Malaysia building cool stuff. Meteor Wallet, which is a wonderful wallet. It's from a Malaysian team. Edward, actually, he was also linking us to many universities. And there were also many Malaysians building projects in Terra. And we tried to mentor them or to bridge them and make them apply for a grant in the NIA Foundation. So throughout 2022, we helped four different teams to submit grant proposals to the NIA Foundation. There are several projects in NIA and Aurora that are Malaysian, they are created by Malaysians. You know, you have 369, which is an NFT marketplace. You have Meteor Wallet, you have Together Coin. Within my role of guild leader, I started also communicating with a lot of projects, doing a lot of AMAs. Pretty much all the social interactions we had were around AMAs. That's how I met, for example, Metapool. We did a liquid staking workshop with Claudio for all Asian guilds, by the way, not only Malaysia. And then within this role of being in contact with many founders or being in contact with many projects, I got in contact with this team, which is a team in o a team which was building Ocam. Ocam is a multi-chain incubator, and they were building something on Near. They were calling it Near Start, and I really like the way they offer many different services and not just Launchpad, because Launchpad at the end of the day is just to provide the initial liquidity for a token. It's something that projects have already figured out how to do on their own anyways. There is not so much value added for a project to do that, but they offer like legal help, technical help, business, do a revenue model, think about long-term sustainability, when are you going to break even and so on. So many things that people can be good at coding, people can be good at forking certain code or whatever, but if you don't have that business vision, your project is not likely going to succeed. And that's how Near Starter got, got started. And as a head of growth, I was just like working on getting the product to be known by projects and founders, receive a lot of applications. So we received more than 60 applications on the first six months of life. And then between 10 to 15% of the projects that apply are accepted into the incubator. And then they are given help until they, they launch. So the first cohort was six projects, and then there is one more in the end. So there's a total of seven projects being incubated by Near Starter right now. And the first one will be launching somewhere in May, actually. That is amazing. Were the 60 applications from Malaysia specifically or around the world? No, this one around the world, yeah. So how, Near, how we design also Near Starter is that it's a DAO governed incubator. So we want to act as a DAO. And it's a DAO of guilds because different guilds of the near ecosystem, the ones that have decided to participate, have a seat in the governance. So you have guilds like, I think from LATAM, we have only near Argentina, but from Asia, we have a lot. Like we have Korea, we have Singapore, we have Malaysia, then we have Nigeria, we have uh, near Ukraine, we have near native. So all these different guilds through a representative that can be the guild leader or can be something, someone different, are part of the DAO of Nearstart. They take decisions over certain, uh, over certain governance stuff. Another cool thing that Nearstarter has is that it has a dual token. When you have a launchpad, you normally have a token which works. The more token you have, the, more, the bigger ticket you can have on the projects that launch. 
but that kind of launchpad 1.0 mechanism makes the token be very volatile because basically the only use case you have is to participate in IDOs. Whenever you're not having an IDO, whenever you're not having a launch, you basically have a useless token in your hands. So the way to solve this issue of giving a permanent use case is to create a second token. And the second token works like an ETF. It's an index pool. And the idea is to have inside all the different projects that get incubated. But if lucky enough, you will not only have projects that are being incubated, you can also have different partners of the ecosystem. For example, we have inside TriSolaris, which is a very, very popular name in the Near and Aurora ecosystem. The way it works is that you have a Near and Aurora index pool, but the only way for you to actually get your hands into that ETF or that index pool, whatever you want to call it, is by staking the Near Starter token. Like that, you're giving a permanent value, a permanent use case, which is staking the token to be able to farm something that it's more long-term, a long-term vision, which is an index pool, which these where we're trying to solve the issue of if people don't have any launch upcoming, they don't see any reason to hold a token, which is a very valid point, by the way. Brilliant example of aligning incentives. When I came across Near Strata, the first thing that jumped out at me is that the design is amazing. It's colorful, it's pixelated. It is one thing that at the risk of making enemies in the Near ecosystem, it's actually rare to find. I don't know why some of our applications are a little bit bland, like lacking on the design side. One of the things that has definitely made Ethereum cool a cool place to hang out and where you want to be is that it's weird and the design conveys that people give a shit to me at least yeah i understand that near sometimes it's going for the institutional that some of our products may be early stage but you can definitely get that feeling that it's just a very well thought out project with a team that you know cares or is dedicated or at the very least they spent some money on a top-notch <laughs> designer the other thing that I like is that if you were to timestamp it, you guys were right and early. Starting in 2023, the Near Foundation announces that the grants program is evolving to an accelerator program. I think, I think they changed the names recently. What's it called? It, it was used to be Near X, but now it's, do you know? Yeah, I don't have the name, but the idea is an accelerator. Yes, they're coming up with that idea. Yeah, it 100% validates the idea that teams near support beyond money. And if you're going to put the money in, you want to increase the chances of success. So I think it's really good to have a community-led incubator. I always have this bittersweet reaction when the foundation does something that is needed but I don't like to see too many things centralizing at that layer. So I think it's fantastic that from the community, we've been able to source talent and already start supporting projects. And as a DeFi connoisseur, I really like the true token model. I think it's a really good way, as you've explained, to maintain the long-term interest in the asset. And in a first instance, you give people exposure because they have an asset that represents many tokens. 
So even if you don't participate in a specific token sale, you still get some exposure to the asset. But I'm actually much more drawn to the other side of the coin. You're giving visibility to a lot of projects by having one project, which is well known, such as Nearstarter, and by having that token, anything that you put in there automatically gets exposure and a different level of buy-in from the people that own the token. When you're an owner or when you're invested, you care much. So you're more likely to go do some research. It's all about raising awareness. Let's see where it goes. But the idea is that, again, we're trying to get a lot of established Nia and Aurora projects to, to be part of the Niaria index pool. And the way to do it, because we don't have a lot of funds, we don't have a big treasury that we just say, hey, Alejandro, we're just going to buy your token. We're just going to buy $50,000 worth of your token. We don't do it that way. But what we are doing is with many projects, for instance, TriSolaris, for instance, Ocam, for instance, Jump, we do a token swap. And so when you do a token swap, you're also aligning incentives, right? Because you are doing, you are giving tokens back to that project. That project can stake, that project can farm that same Niaria, right? So basically, Alejandro, because you put your token inside of Niaria, you're also going to be holding a portion of it because you're being given a token that you just need to stake it. You're going to farm a, a truckload of that index pool. So we may end up with that index pool, which is very comprehensive and truly mirrors the whole Nier and Aurora ecosystem, but it's holding, it's also very well distributed across the different partners of the ecosystem, right? So it, it's also like a decentralization experiment that we need to see how it plays out, basically. I love it. Would you guys be open to having a mechanism where hypothetically someone could donate tokens into the pool? Wow. Say I sit on the ref finance community board and I've accumulated some ref, but I don't want to. That's so interesting because look what we did with Shih Tzu, because this is so interesting, Alejandro. I mean, talking about governance and talking about cool stuff. We have to talked about this token swap and we have done this token swap with projects that arguably are very, they are still centralized, like Jump, like TriSolaris. We were just talking to the team. We were not talking to the community of TriSolaris. We were just talking to the team. But in Shih Tzu, something different happened. Shih Tzu is a 100% public coin. All the supply, it's already circulating. And there is no real head of Shih Tzu. You have some very adamant community leaders like, like Arturo, but the project is completely decentralized. So we created a crowd swap. Basically, we said for this certain period of time, you send whatever amount of Shih Tzu you want to this wallet, which is the Niaria wallet. And we will give you at a certain snapshot date, which everything was well announced. So there is no way to game the system. If you just send me $10 worth of Shih Tzu, I am going to send you back $10 worth of Near Starter coin. So it was a crowd swap. It was a token swap, but it was happening between the community and the project and not between just two projects. So what you're suggesting here is just something different again to feed that Niaria pool. And I am totally open for it, but. Let's do it. We already have a chat going on to do some stuff with some project. I'll follow up with internally to see what's happening with that. But if we could open it up to 
donations or some kind of in-kind yeah. contribution. Be like, should not be a donation because it should not be just a one-way, should be a token swap, ideally, and that token that it's gotten... Like, for instance, the idea that we are doing with TriSolaris and with DEXES is that the token you receive back, you can actually use it in marketing activities or in liquidity mining. So what we offer to, what we could offer Ref, for example, is that we will create a near starter pool in your DEX, therefore bringing liquidity to your DEX. But then the token you're getting, you can give it as liquidity mining rewards there, for example, right? So you bring even more liquidity. And at the same time, your token is going into the Niaria index pool. So you get represented in the index pool and you also get some liquidity in your text, right? So it's just trying to maximize, like to make it a win-win for both communities. I think that maybe that's a format that could work for refinance. I like it. I love it. Let's do it. Let's try it. Can the Niaria token be dissolved? and people obtain all the assets that are represented by that one token? So right now, because we we launched NSTART and we have opened the Niaria farming since January. So it has been around for now two months. We want to leave at least six months to make sure that we have enough components in the index and then coin the Niaria coin, right? So the way it would work is that you would have the Niaria coin Niaria will trade at whatever value it is. Like an ETF, you have the price at which that is trading, but then you have the underlying value, the net asset value. So it can trade at a discount or at a premium. There has to be a redemption mechanism in which somebody, let's say Alejandro, buys a certain amount of the coin, let's say $10,000, and burns the Niaria to get the underlying token, right? But... We need to find what is the sweet spot. The same way you can, in an ETF, you can actually redeem gold ETF. You can, when you hold a certain amount, you can just redeem a bar of gold and so on. You just need to decide what is the threshold you want to do that. Because it's not reasonable to say you can get $10 worth of Niaria, right? It needs to be a higher amount of money. But it's the one and... that in the end will, will, will allow arbitrage uh, and will allow a healthy price of the Niaria index pool. And if I could add a suggestion, I like, this is where my indigenous instincts come through. I like the pools where you pay a fee when you withdraw the money and the fee goes towards the people that are still in the pool. So in a way you want to where possible deter people from pulling funds out, but also reward the people that hold in the long term. I know that perhaps the concept doesn't apply one-to-one -one because there is a natural arbitrage that occurs when you have the underlying assets in the pool, but maybe something to think about. It's very valid because look, for to farm the area, you need to stake and start. And we have a unstaking fee, which is right now 10%. In the future, it will be made linearly decreasing. But that 10% unstaking fee is feeding also the Niaria pool, right? So again, it's just like a device, a transfer device from the short-term thinkers to the long-term thinkers. So what you're suggesting is the same mechanism that it's currently live on NSTART, but to be live on Niaria too, right? So definitely we can study that.
fees everywhere. That's so why we have a sustainable business model. <laughs> yes, yes. No, people are going to hate me for it. Now, Sir Antonio, we finally got around scheduling this pod because you've recently been given a very important, very honorable role within the near ecosystem. The near digital collective has been working for months. The very first step is the community treasury, which is a trust fund. There are five trustees. And after a very thorough selection process, I know because I was also shortlisted, <laughs> you are one of the five. So I thought it'd be very good to give the community an opportunity to get to know you. I am somewhat saddened by some of the things that I've seen on the governance forum. It is clear that without attributing everything to the bad intent of some people, we just have to do more communication. And throughout this conversation, I think it's clear that you've been committed to the near ecosystem and to your local community and done some fantastic work in Malaysia. You've contributed to the creation of new projects through near starter. And yeah, now I'd like to open up the topic of near governance, NDC, and the trust fund, because I'm sure that you have some unique insights on that one as well. It's in general, it's just a good idea to, to fund community. So it's great that there is a community treasury. The, the figure of a trustee is just somebody that's going to, in very simple terms, just own the multi-sig upon which funds are going to be dispersed. You have a separation of powers in the way that what you're feeding is what we call the vertical DAOs, creative DAO, marketing DAO. And those are going to be the ones who know very well the projects, the projects that have been already be contributing to the ecosystem or that have the selection process or the criteria, eligibility criteria for the grants. And those are the ones that are going to be continuing doing the grants. Because if, for example, myself, I'd need to now create a process or learn a process to decide whom do I give the money to, I personally don't have that amount of time. I prefer to dedicate it to, to the projects I work daily with. And so at the end of the day, the trustee is just a figure that's there to ensure things are doing right in the correct way and to ensure that community treasury is going to end up impacting the grassroots people, the people around different countries working on different uh, ecosystems, whether it's NFTs, whether it's DeFi, whether it's art and many other Web3 use cases, and that they actually get the funding they deserve to continue making near an Aurora, I'd say, thriving ecosystems. I see it as a symbolic role, to be honest, a role that it's important. Good to see the way it has been decentralized geographically and in terms of the background of the people that have been chosen trustees. There is also a very valuable, very prepared legal team that it's helping us along the way and coaching us. I'm happy. I'm honored being one of them. I was a bit surprised when there was a lot of uproar in certain members of the community, but it's always good to talk things. This is a place to clear everything up. And if there's still uproar, we just kill them. <laughs> <laughs> no, of yeah, course you, not. I've spent some quite amount of time in, in the governance forum in Mir, and particularly I've seen a lot of attacks towards you, Satohandro, right? Just because you were actually holding 
the money of the marketing DAO. So some people would always like come and complain that you did this, you did that. And for me, you're a very integral person and you've been doing a lot of things for the near near ecosystem. It took me some time to understand that you will have that amount of, let's say, hate or dissenting voices. I have also seen that with Shih Tzu community, for example, which I believe it's one of the more wholesome, active, organic communities in the whole blockchain ecosystem. And we have the privilege and the honor to have them in the near and outer ecosystem. And I saw just people attacking them whatsoever because it was a meme coin or whatever it is. So after after that, I couldn't be surprised at any kind of attacks. But at the end of the day, what matters is that we're doing things in the right direction. Yeah, there has to be... If you want to take this claim seriously, there's a lot of things you have to take into account beyond what they're saying. So for instance, what are the vested interests of the person making the claims? Because from the experience of the marketing DAO, what we can see is that there is a one-to-one correlation between people that were rejected, so the proposals were not successful, and then them having personal attacks against the decision makers whether it is just to cause trouble or whether they believe that those attacks are going to remove those decision makers and they will get some decision makers in that are more favorable. But when do you understand that the motivation is a personal agenda and not an ecosystem agenda, then the whole conversation changes. That would be like me calling my ex's employer and be like, oh, this person lacks integrity. Yeah, because they dumped you. Whatever happened between you and this person is completely irrelevant to the workforce. So that is a very important distinction to make. I am a little bit more nuanced when it comes to anon people on the forum. I personally like anonymity. I personally may or may not have more than one account on the governance forum. (laughs) Although I am pretty transparent with most things that I post. The key point here is... If your point has any validity, it shouldn't matter who says it. If you have a genuine grievance and you're able to communicate in a civilized way, maybe there should be an answer there. But yes, there's been a long-standing issue with the environment that we create on the forum. Memetics are real. If you go there and it's all a shit fight, you become savage. If you go there and it's people being polite and adding to each other in ways that we can move forward, then it becomes a very productive place. I think it's hilarious that the developers forked themselves out of the forum. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the developers, everything developers, it's on alpha.near.org, which is a fascinating self-selection mechanism because these trolls probably don't even know that alpha.near.org exists and the forum it's a work in progress. Yeah. I just find fascinating decentralized governance. Look, all these discussions and all these like trolls or stuff, like all these negative connotation stuff that we're seeing, you wouldn't have it in other L1s where making and funding is not so decentralized. Not gonna name it. Go to Polygon and try to go to a place where you complain about Polygon not giving you money for certain stuff. That doesn't exist. 
and in the existing near because it's so decentralized and we have these powerful communities and these skills and stuff. In a similar way, like you have projects that don't have any, in the spectrum of decentralizations, you have some projects which, although they operate in DeFi, they're completely centralized. Then you have some companies that they have their snapshot.org, they have some on-chain governance, but only what they want to put in that governance. And then you have the extremes where even very important operational decisions that you need to take somehow in an agile manner, things like salaries, like what should a team of developers be earning? And then Sushi Swap, they leaves that in the hands of the community. And then it's a shit show. It's a shit show because decentralized governance is such a nascent thing. So we just need to admit that it's inefficient but that we are going to be making baby steps on the next, on the years to come because DeFi still, or these distributed communities are still uh, such an early term and we will get better with time. So this is just growing pains and you and I, as part of a decentralized community and governance, which is near, need to accept and be part of it. There's always been a tension and inevitably, superiority, if you compare the social sciences with the real sciences. Agreed. You want to decentralize an airline, who the fuck are you going to call to assemble the plane? Not going to be an anon on the governance forum, not going to be my mum. You want at least someone who knows about engineering. I would dispense of, I went to so university, or that's like paper prestige i'm less about that but you want to have someone that knows what the fuck they're talking about the issue that we have with governance is that we assume that because it's most of the people talking shit and yes or no yeah the voting decision is easy as in the procedural and the transferring of money is easy that's an admin task but the knowledge that goes into making the decision and all the subtleties about making that decision, maybe that's a bit more specialized. You hit it in the nail when you said that to just don't have the time to do that end user decision-making for individual proposals. Some people may think that these two ideas can't coexist, but we're entering an era of both decentralization and specialization. We're decentralizing away from one entity, which is an ear foundation into multiple entities, but each one of those entities is specialized. The near community trust fund just mentioned, you have a very narrow legal purpose and it starts with funding only grassroots DAOs. So there will only be three grassroots DAOs initially marketing developers and creatives. And you just have to assess the proposal from that DAO against the legal purposes of the role. The DAO go crazy, funding stops. Is the DAO doing what it's meant to be doing? You pass the money on. Each DAO has in turn their own trust fund. We're working on that now. We have an email from the lawyers I have to read this morning. And we have to do the same. For each one of our applicants, we have to assess what is our purpose? What is the applicant doing? 
And we're likely to see more and more of these organizations. Like I was having a conversation with players over the weekend. Fascinating. Anyone listening, if you're interested, let us know. We're talking about a notion whereby every time any one body grows to be too large, we further decentralize. Okay. So the example is if the marketing DAO hits, this is just a hypothetical number, 200,000 per month, break it off. Which segment of content creation is taking the most money? Now they have their own independent DAO. So in the next six months, we could have a podcasting DAO, a YouTubing DAO, a TikTok DAO. You want to make sure that the decision maker is always the best person to make the decision. The That's what the centralization looks like. Holding the knowledge. Yeah. I don't know what these crazy people on the forum think that decentralization means. I am inclined to think from what I've read over the past 12 months that it is no decision maker. They just want to get their dirty hands on the money and no one can say anything. That's what I can see. Because every time that we have structures to try to get the best people to make decisions, there's some crazy claims and some issues. I think so now yeah. probably one, one of, from the on-chain governance and decentralized governance perspective, one thing I'm really looking for is on-chain reputation, right? Once you're going to start bringing reputation inside of the blockchain, you are allowing something like what you're saying, like letting the people that know more about a certain issue, because it's very verifiable. You can see the experience this person has on a certain on a certain sector of the Web3, be a decision maker or help you or advise you on that particular item. And this is something that on-chain reputation is going to bring. In particular, I see that many blockchains are trying to bring on-chain reputation at the protocol layer, not in your own DApp or not in your wallet, but rather the whole blockchain allowing on-chain reputation. It's going to be a significant leap in terms of decentralized governance. So let's see how that plays out. But in the meantime, we're going to have to suffer. Dude, listening to Ilya talk about reputation in general and on-chain reputation it's amazing. Most recently in Denver, they were talking about this idea. I don't know if anyone's working on it at the moment. It's coming through near social and NTC. Basically, maybe I should not have attached Ilya's idea to this because I don't know how much of it he said and how much I've workshop with other people afterwards. But let's say that you have an initial group of people, let's say Genesis accounts. They have whatever, 10 points, 10 reputation points that they can gift. And there is a vault with near that gets dripped to the recipient of those reputation points. So for example, say I release a podcast with Alex from Aurora and a lot of people in the community or that early cohort of people withstanding, they all pledge reputation points to me. I would get dripped near for that period of time. And there's a couple of things here. The first one is that there would be a threshold after which you've been given enough reputation where you also earn the ability to give others reputation. So you and I may not have come in a Genesis block. We're not core developers. We're not foundation employees, but probably by now, you and I would have accumulated enough reputation to then be able to give out more. 
And that's how you further decentralize because it's like trust lines. You can give out to people in Malaysia. I can give out to people in Latam, in Australia. And the drip could amount to the community essentially hiring in a decentralized way, like a developer. So you say you want to bring in, and this is a big problem for developers. You want to bring in someone really talented from Cosmos. They could be contributing to open source projects, or they could be contributing to several things. There isn't a clear employee, like who hires this person? <laughs> Where does the money come from? So even if people stake reputation to them, they could actually amount to receiving enough near to commit to a project. And these are the things that I'm like, can we make this happen? Like right now? <laughs> Pretty interesting. Fascinating, man. Fascinating. And that's just one. The other one that he was mentioning is that right now, he was talking in the context of like credit scores. You could potentially create something like an under-collateralized lending platform or derive someone's credit score based on their on-chain activity yeah. because it's all there. It, it depends on the creator of the protocol and how they assign the weights. But even something like if my account has received payments from the Near Foundation grants pool or if I've been liquidated on borrowed cash or if I've been staking for two years, like they can really think of many parameters, including interactions between wallets. If you and I have transacted or etc. So yeah, I think it's really cool. We're barely starting to scratch the surface of what we can do with the data that is already on chain. That is already there, yes. Indeed. And once people realize what they can do with that, I think we're going to enter the era of what applications or experiences can we do that harvest a lot of data <laughs> to then power new experiences? This is where near social is going, but yeah, probably topic talk for another to the, podcast. Talk to the bike speak team to bring the on-chain data to the next step. Yeah, they're doing some great work over there. Sir Antonio, what's next for the community treasury? Have you met the other trustees? Yes, we have met in several virtual meetings. I do happen to know a couple of them physically from NIRCON and Amit Denver. And what's next is actually receiving some paperwork that apparently somebody's missing because of some post office mistake or whatever it is. And then after that, I believe that it's going to be uh, recurring internal calls being set up. The Community Treasury Wallet is going to be signed up, the one that the multi-sig will be operating. And I do believe there will also be a call scheduled with the community. I'm looking forward to that one. This was like an appetizer of it, right? But it will be cool to have the five of us answering doubts from the community. And then after that, let's see, there will be the first fundings for the vertical DAOs, such as Marketing DAO and Creatives Developers. So looking forward to that moment happening and then see what these vertical DAOs are in turn going to be funding because that's going to be the, I would say the renaissance of some projects and things that have been a little bit stopped, but that definitely have talent and potential for the near and outer ecosystems. The renaissance. renaissance. Yeah, let's do it. I think it's great. Alina asked me if I wanted to have 
the five trustees at the same time. And I was like, I want to give each one of you the space to tell your story because it's so sad when people are standardized, even though you're all five trustees. And I guess that your legal duties to the trust are the same. We can't pretend that you're all the same person. And I do think that there is a story and a reason why you make good trustees and why you've been chosen initially. And by the way, this is not a lifetime role. This could be inspirational for people doing community work now or any type of work who may be the next batch of trustees in whatever year's time or whatever the time frame may be. Sir Antonio, I am extremely grateful for your time. I hope that this podcast serves to give people a better insight into who you are and why you make a good trustee. I am bracing myself for the attacks of people saying that this is a circle of jerk of corruption and that you fund me and I fund you and we're stealing lots of money. <laughs> we know it's coming. Oh my God. Thank you very much for your time, Alejandro. I enjoyed a lot. I jump on a lot of AMAs. They're normally like the subject is very narrow. We will just talk about certain products, certain topics, certain blockchain. Today, we have just covered everything from expatriation to geography to geopolitics, then passing by near blockchain. And I'm very happy to have talked to you. See you maybe near con 2023, maybe before that. See you, man. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained on this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice. And you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.